Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Keegan Osinski. Keegan is a librarian and author of the recent book, Queering Wesley, Queering the Church. Also musically featured throughout this episode is May. May is an alternative band from Virginia. You can get connected with Keegan and May and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Reconciliation on my mind, it's all I can do. It's a losing game when we keep on trading blame for blame. Keeping count of all the wrongs we've made, oh honey, I'm through. Today we have Keegan Osinski with me. And Keegan, not only are you a dear friend of mine, but you also are a librarian of a theological school that maybe shall remain nameless because I work at a different theological school. But uh, you do so many cool things in the world. In fact, you just wrote an incredible book called Queering Wesley, Queering the Church. And we're going to talk all about that. But before we jump into that, who is Keegan Osinski to Keegan Osinski? Oh, like, wait, what? Who are you to yourself? Oh, um, that's a weird question. I don't even nobody's know ever told. That. I've I've done almost 100 episodes. Nobody's ever said it's a weird question. In fact, most people like it. So you are an editor really at heart, aren't you? Listen, I have an appointment with a therapist coming up. I'm not ready to answer that question yet. I'm sure you have existential dread all the time. So I'm th- I'm sure you're thinking of this question all the time. You got like a four wing, don't you? Come on. No, wait. People just answer this question yeah, like it's nor- no big nor- Normally, people just say like, "I, I'm a, I'm a dad. I, I write books, and I like turtles or something." Oh, wow. Okay, I usually people just say, "Who am I?" Yeah, you're really, you're really. I'm taking like, this way too seriously. And then there's the process theology people, and they always have the best answers to it. But it's okay if you don't. Wow, I you just put me down as the worst answer to this question. No, no, that. there's there's pretty bad ones. You're really thinking hard about it, which is great. It's really it's really stressful. It's really putting me through it. I great. wasn't prepared for this kind it's of like all like, the trauma or something all rushing back or something. I don't know. I guess so. I have a lot of like repressed self image issues happening. I guess. Wow. I hope you get emails about this. You're gonna be like, are you okay? <laughs> well, we don't have to answer it if you don't want to. We can just talk about the book if you'd like. Uh, well, I mean, so I guess the I'm not a father or a husband, so do you like turtles though? Do you like turtles? They're okay. I actually have one uh, growing up. Really? Yeah. 
Um, I didn't know. So apparently with turtles, it's hard to tell their sex um, by looking at them, which, you know, same. I don't know. (laughs) So I I had to choose like a unisex name for it. So its name was Rory. Oh, that's a great unisex name. Love it. Or Taylor. Taylor. Imagine a turtle named Taylor. (laughs) Well, Keegan is actually a pretty unisex name, too. Most most I always get letters addressed to me as Mr. Keegan Osinski. I bet that feels good. (laughs) Even my alma mater, where I but my the school I did my library degree at always sends me like alumni news and stuff to Mr. Keegan Osinski for some reason. All right. Let's talk about your book. So this is your first officially published book. What did you learn about yourself while you were writing this book? Other than you can only write 500 words at a time. (laughs) Well, I already knew that. I already knew I was a slow as hell writer and very succinct, I like to say. I like to spin it positively. I consider myself a concise writer. I don't like a lot of superfluous words. So I just don't have to write a lot of words. But I think I think I, I really do enjoy writing. I mean, it sucks. Don't get me wrong. I like complained every second of it. But also like as far as what I learned about myself, like I think it really did affirm my sense of myself as a writer. It just a lot of it felt really natural to me. To, to be doing this work and, and writing this stuff. And a, a lot of, at a lot of points along the way, I guess considering that this book is really um, filling a gap in, in the scholarship, like no one has really been doing this kind of work. I found myself asking like, why not so often? Because it seems so easy to me and almost effortless to be making these connections and doing this work. So just to give a little background there, Wesley, Wesley, the Wesleyan tradition. So we're talking Methodist, the church of the Nazarene, you got free Methodists, you have uh, the Wesleyan church. It's its own denomination. Um, there's just all kinds of little Wesleyan holiness denominations out there kind of in the same tradition. None of them are affirming of LGBTQ lives. But all of them take Wesley as, you know, kind of the source material of their theology. And for me to, as a queer person and a Wesleyan, it doesn't seem like the two are really in conflict at all. And it was really easy for me to find the the resonances between Mm. the two. And so it was just so surprising to me along the way that no one had really done this yet. Again, there's tons of reasons why a lot of people who are trained theologians in the Wesleyan tradition are ordained by these non-affirming denominations. And so they're not in a position to do, say risky things or do risky work, um, or they are, you know, they're teaching at seminaries or schools that are not openly affirming. And so it's it's risky for them to do any kind of work in this area. And so I have a really unique position where I'm not ordained. I'm not, you know, working at a Wesleyan school. The church is not paying my bills. Uh, I don't have credentials that would be at risk. So I, I was able to kind of 
have the freedom and the privilege to do this work. So to begin this conversation, I think it's really important for people to even know who John Wesley is, because, you know, obviously this is an important theological figure in your life. And so who is John Wesley and what are sort of the theological concepts he's known for? And why do you think his theology matters to queering the church and queer theology? So John Wesley was a, an Anglican priest in the 1700s. He is also considered the founder of Methodism. So any United Methodists out there will gladly, I'm sure, school you on uh, John Wesley and uh, all of his doctrine. He also influenced, you know, a whole stream of uh, Wesleyan churches. So in the book, I um, talk pretty generically about the Wesleyan tradition. And that includes a lot of denominations. So like I said, United Methodist, uh, Church of the Nazarene, which is my denomination, Salvation Army, Free Methodist. There is a Wesleyan church that is its own denomination. Um, And so all of these churches share this kind of heritage of John Wesley, also his brother, Charles, who has written, he wrote like a bajillion hymns, several of which you're probably familiar with. Yeah, so his whole thing was, it's called Methodism for a reason. So he was very methodical about the way he practiced his Christianity as a very pious, you know, this idea of like personal piety was really important. He kept really um, extensive journals to kind of keep himself on track and discipline his mind. And he published a lot of his sermons as well. And that's kind of where my project comes from is his sermons. So I took 10 of his sermons um, and did a queer reading of each of them. The most important piece usually of Wesleyan theology is Christian perfection. Um, So this idea that um, in this life, you can be freed from sin and made completely holy. Holiness. Holiness is the big thing. If you remember anything about John Wesley, it's like he's all about holiness. And so the importance of Wesley for considering a queer read or queer life in the church, I think, is to consider the relationship between queerness and holiness. So There's several parts in the book where I kind of play around with these ideas of like, how is being queer holy and how is being holy queer? And they really are quite complementary, it seems. Um, There's a lot that we can learn from instead of partitioning these two ideas as incompatible, um, instead bringing them together and letting them like touch each other. (laughs) I was going to say something naughtier, but let's just go with that. I can put an E next to this podcast episode. So if you want to be, (laughs) say whatever you want. I know. I'm sure I'm probably going to drop (laughs) F-bombs. One of the things I loved about this book is it's not necessarily like trying to defend queer people as 
Christians, uh, like many, you know, there are a lot of books out there about LGBTQ Christians from LGBTQ Christians, you know, going through like the six clobber passages and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not necessarily what this book is about. It's really about actually the church taking what we can learn from queer studies and queerness and taking that into the church. Why is it really important for the church to make this turn from queer sort of apologetics, if you will, to actually becoming queer itself? Yeah, I was very forthright about that. You know, in the introduction, I'm very clear, like, this is not an apologetic. This is not a polemical text, really. I mean, I'm not trying to, I mean, there's an argument to it, as you said, that like the church is benefited by being open to queer folks. And, you know, there's a, a, a liberatory sense of sexuality and gender is, you know, a positive for the church generally. Yeah, I, I personally am not interested in, you know, these questions of like, can a gay person be a Christian, you know, or like, how, how does your faith and your sexuality interact? Like, are they in conflict? I just none of these conversations are interesting to me. I, I understand that people are concerned with these questions and they are very important questions to a lot of people. And like tons of people have spent tons of time talking and thinking and reading and writing about this, which like I completely appreciate and respect, but it just, that is not for me. I don't really care to read that stuff. I'm not going to write that stuff. I don't care to think about it. (laughs) I'm bored of it, honestly. Um, And so that just, that's not my thing. That's not my place. Um, that's not what I'm interested in doing. So that's not what this is. In the beginning of the book, you talk about being born again. And in the Gospels, Jesus talks about, you know, to be a follower of him, that you must be born again. And Wesley also talks about this concept quite a bit. For LGBTQ plus folks, oftentimes there's this moment of coming out in their lives to people about their sexuality and or gender. How is being born again a sort of coming out, if you will? Yeah, so that's the way I took um, Wesley's sermon called On the New Birth. I framed the new birth as a kind of coming out because the whole process of new birth, which starts with repentance and goes toward holiness, I saw reflected in the kind of process of queer folks coming to terms with themselves, reflecting on their own identities, their own sexualities, preferences, feelings, desires, and then, you know, moving through that to a more public expression or embrace of that toward wholeness, right? So a lot of the challenge of sin, for example, in in Wesley's formulation, Um, You have this sin that holds you back from, you know, a holy life. Um, And for the queer person, you have this kind of sin in air quotes of the closet of this, you know, shame or hiding or repression, suppression that holds you back from a life of wholeness uh, in terms of living into the love that you deserve or the relationships that are marked by honesty and freedom rather than, than, you know, lies or, you know, hiding. So I just kind of took that um, parallel and 
read the sermon in that way um, to, to think about how queer folks coming out is a step toward holiness as wholeness of the person. All right. I got to ask, because you wrote an entire chapter on it, how much did you enjoy writing about circumcision? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I could have been a guest contributor if you really wanted somebody who knew the pain and agony. I could have, uh, I could have certainly written that chapter for you if you needed to. <laughs> well, so, I mean, it's pretty interesting. Like, I did have to do, I did quite a bit of reading on circumcision itself for that chapter. And thinking, thinking it through queer terms of the fact that, like, Wesley and, you know, the Bible talks about circumcision of the heart. And that is um, a queer move because it moves the question of circumcision from a penis that is, you know, not accessible to anyone to the heart, which is, you know, not gendered or, you know, in the way that a penis tends to be. So that was actually the first chapter that I wrote when I very first started this um, project. I wrote it in spring of 2017. And that was my first kind of idea was like, I read this sermon and I was like, I wonder what I could do to like fuck around with this. And so that, that was the, that was the one that really started it all. Wow. Uh, It seemed like a really good chapter considering the fact that you were sort of a little out of your lane to be writing about circumcision, but you know. (laughs) Uh, So one of the things that Wesley is known for is his concepts of sanctification and perfection. And you have an entire chapter about perfection. Can you talk about what Wesley means by perfection and how it relates to queer people? Christian perfection is like, yeah, one of the main things for Wesley and for Wesleyan Christians, it throws a lot of people off, um, especially if you're not familiar with the Wesleyan tradition, because you're immediately like, like perfection, like, are you serious? Like, you think you can just be perfect? That seems weird. So the way I talk about it is, again, like, it all comes back to this definition of perfect love of God and neighbor. That's what I'm always going to go back to because that makes it make sense to me that a person can be motivated purely by love. Like that is a really great aspiration. I think Um, like that is what we should be going for. I think so in terms of like queer life and queer love, There's a really important way that I think talking about perfection does not limit Christian life to cisgender heterosexual people, Um, right? If you talk about perfection as perfect love of God and neighbor, there's nothing about that that limits it to a certain gender or a certain sexuality or a certain kind of person at all. Um, It really opens it up and makes it accessible to anyone. And so I I think it gets really easy with within Wesleyanism specifically because of the way Wesley has all also often been thought of as very disciplined and strict um, to think about legalism and Mm. rules and 
Um, you know, I'm a member of the Church of the Nazarene. Like, we're not supposed to drink or dance. What? Or there's a saying like, I don't drink or dance or chew, and I don't go out with girls who do, or something like that. Um, <laughs> so there is all of that right in the background. But at the end of the day, Christian perfection isn't about any of that. It's mm. about perfect love of God and neighbor. And so that keeping that at the forefront, I think is, is important and needs to kind of, it needs to, there needs to be a resurgence of that. Like that needs to be the revival that we're looking for. Sort of along those lines, you wrote just kind of a section around this, but what does Wesley believing that one doesn't have to believe like the right things and the right doctrines about Christianity have anything to do with queerness? I was really surprised by that, finding that in Wesley. Again, because you kind of expect him to be very strict and disciplined and, and orthodox. So the fact that he actually has a really capacious theology, like there's a lot of space mm. in his thinking and in his living and in the way that he envisions Christian community. For example, the chapter on the sermon, um, a caution against bigotry. This is the one that I think of a lot where the text he uses is the one where the disciples come to, to Jesus and they're like, Hey, uh, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name. So we told him to stop. And Jesus is just like, what the fuck? Why would you do that? And Wesley uses that story to talk about like, yeah, like if people are casting out demons, <laughs> like if they're living in love in the way of Jesus, if the demons are going away, that's the important thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's, that's the, that's the goal is for the demons to go away. <laughs> so who cares like who's doing what and how they're doing it. If the demons are going away in Jesus's name, that's a good, that's a good, that's a net good for everyone. <laughs> and so Wesley kind of brings this into this question of orthodoxy and taking sides and that kind of thing and, and drawing boundaries and, and things like this. And he just, it's very open because he's like, listen, here's what Jesus said. Jesus says, forbid them not. I'm not going to be the one to tell people to stop casting out demons. If Jesus says it's okay. I'm not going to be the one that tells people they can't preach just because they're gay. And so that's really what it comes down to. I mean, I know so many people who, you know, again, I'm part of the Church of the Nazarene, which is like a more conservative version of the Methodists. And I know so many people who grew up Nazarene who have a call to ministry, but also were queer and so have been pushed out, sent away. And have had to fulfill their calling in other denominations, which like good for them because like, obviously like they are talented ministers and are indeed called to the ministry and the church of Nazarene is missing out because they're like the disciples being like, mm, no, you're, mm. Mm, we don't want you casting out the demons. Mm -hmm. You don't do it right. Or you're not the right kind of person to cast out the demons. Or you are the demon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Meanwhile, Jesus is like, y'all are fucking wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. One of the other chapters I really appreciated was about pleasure and pain. How can queerness and even Wesleyan theology help us to better understand pleasure and pain? 
That chapter was the sermon that I used was the general deliverance. Um, and this is one of Wesley's more famous sermons that is really centered on creation and the new creation and kind of example that we have from Eden. So like the original creation. And so he talks a lot about the pre-fall garden and what that world would have might have been like and how we can think about the coming kingdom or whatever in a similar way. And so he's he's kind of speculating about um what it looks like for a world to be without sin and without pain and without suffering um as he thinks about the original creation and then as at the new creation. And so again I was so surprised by the connection that he makes between sinlessness and pleasure and happiness. So he talks at length about the humans and the creatures being happy and enjoying the creation and um, this idea of pleasure being really important to the wholeness of a sinless world. And so I just kind of extrapolated that into thinking about pleasure more generally, um, and then obviously connecting it to like sexual pleasure and the goodness of that and what, what it means to engage in pleasure in a way that is sinless and holy, which again, going back to the question about perfection or holiness as perfect love of God and neighbor. Right. So that if that is kind of the baseline mark of what, you know, a holy pleasure would look like a pleasure that is full of love um, and has love as its only motivation and thinking about what that is like and how that can show us glimpses of, you know, a of a new creation, even even here and now. I'm going to read you a quote from your book that you said. So don't accuse me for putting words in your mouth, okay? <laughs> okay? You said, a persistent marker of queerness is that it does not abide predetermined structures as normative for relationships. You sound a lot like a process theologian here, Keegan. Yeah, of course, because there is, yeah, process theology is like super queer. There's tons of like overlap and integration to do there because exactly the thing about queerness um, as opposed to heteronormativity is you don't have these scripts, right? So instead of like established hierarchies or like methods and structures that are fixed, um, instead, you have this kind of like 
unbridled openness that you get to create what you want to create yourself. Every like moment is an instance of becoming into the future. So you don't have these expectations to fulfill in the same way that you do in a heteronormative hegemony, right? Of like, well, you got to go to college and then get married and have babies. And this is just what you do. Um, In queer world, that is not necessarily what you do. And that's a good thing. And we need more opportunities to think through this openness of becoming rather than a kind of lockstep escalator Mm -hmm. or something like this of life, because that kind of pressure to conform can be really harmful. Mm -hmm. This is where even I think like straight people or even an institution like the church can really embrace queerness, not necessarily meaning that like a straight person is now queer, but there are so many facets to queerness that I think that not only can straight people learn from, but that they can really truly embrace in their lives. And I think in a lot of ways, the church can too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, a model that I really like is, um, I learned it in uh, disability studies, which is um, the social model of disability, which is opposed to, I think the other ones are like the medical model or anyways, which basically is that we as a society disable other people. And so the way to kind of combat that is to create accessible spaces for everyone rather than inaccessible spaces. And when you create an accessible space, you're making an accessible space for everyone. So an example of this, you know, is say like a wheelchair ramp um, rather than stairs. So if you have stairs, Only people who can climb stairs can use the stairs. But if you have a ramp, anyone who can use stairs can also use a ramp, but also a person in a wheelchair can use a ramp, right? Or another example is um, with food. If you serve a vegetarian meal to be more accessible to your group, everyone can eat. But if you serve a meat lover's pizza, you're going to leave people out. It's not an accessible thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help everyone. So I think about um, liberatory sexuality in the same kind of way, that if we think about gender and sexuality in a truly accessible or liberative way, um, it really is available and beneficial to everyone. Mm, I love that. This question is probably a little bit more for me than it is for listeners, but I found it really interesting. But something that you brought up towards the end of the book that I think is really subtle, and I I certainly don't think it's even like the main point of the chapter, but I think it could have a lot of impact for how we think about worship uh, and church structures and all of that, is that even in a lot of like progressive churches, there is this expectation on what people, even including clergy, should wear. But you mentioned that like a querying of theology means that all people may wear what they that fully expresses them. So I'm kind of curious, like, is that sort of interpretation of like thinking about even how we come to worship for clergy and lay people, like what we're able to wear 
was that something that you were thinking of in it, when you were writing that or am I just like trying to interpret this for myself here? <laughs> so I think, I think what you're talking about is my, is the chapter on the wedding garment, right? Yes, so I, yes. yeah, I, I do a lot of work in that chapter on queer, especially like um, butch and femme aesthetics mm -hmm. and the kind of creation of community based on um, aesthetics, based on clothing, things like that. And I think that's a really good question about the kinds of communities we create based on the clothing we wear in church. I So I didn't really grow up going to church and the churches I have been to as like a teenager and adult have always been like fairly con like casual, I guess. I mean, I've never felt any kind of way about getting dressed for church. Yeah, but I know, especially like for me as a woman, the things that I wear are, you know, apparently for public discussion <laughs> um, or, you know, confrontation or whatever, you know, I'm used to having to consider very carefully what I wear into which kinds of spaces and things like that. And so that these kinds of aesthetic choices and considerations are definitely part of communities and you know there's nothing worse than like walking into a room and being like underdressed or overdressed although i mean i guess in some sense like what is that oscar wilde quote like you can never be overdressed or overeducated or something like that i grew up evangelical i have no idea who that is <laughs> how do you hope that this book could be inspiring and liberating theologically for people so I mentioned toward the beginning how this is really kind of a new project. It's a new way of thinking about Wesley. It really hasn't been done before. And so I am really excited to kind of present this as an offering and not in any way of like, all right, I did it, you know, check. We got queer Wesley now, um, but in a way that inspires more conversation and more work on queer theory, queer theology, and the Wesleyan tradition. There's so many things. I mean, the book's not very long. It's like 130 pages or something. And as I was like reading it and editing it, there were parts where I was like, oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. Like just more and more stuff kept bubbling up that I was like, oh, I should have you know, gone a different direction, or I should have like included this whole extra part. But I'm more interested in other people taking up the, the cause or whatever, and continuing the work. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear. I mean, there's so many queer Wesleyans that I've heard from, you know, Methodists and Nazarenes, who are really excited to read this because they haven't seen themselves in Wesleyan theology ever. And so I'm curious to see what they're going to do with it and how they're going to be able to access Wesley. And, you know, in a lot of ways, this project is more a model than anything. It was just kind of like, all right, I'm doing this thing. Let me tell you what I'm doing. And then I'm going to do it. And then y'all can do it. So it's kind of just giving an example of reading queerly um, that can really be applied to anything some of the a lot of the methodology is pretty standard 
So I'm, I'm more excited to like have this be a starting point of a conversation um, rather than like a completed, you know, closed system or anything like that. Well, if you're giving me permission, I'll write a book called Queering Mark Driscoll, Queering the Church. <laughs> I'm sure Mark Driscoll would love that. <laughs> Last question, Keegan. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Keegs with three Zs. Um, my website is keeganosinski.com. And my email address is keeganosinski at gmail.com. And people certainly know where to get a hold of you on email. <laughs> or that they yeah, do. I've, I've definitely gotten some uh, interesting emails as a result of this work. <laughs> where can people get the book? It's pretty much available wherever you can get books from. Uh, the publisher is Cascade Books, which is an imprint of Whippenstock. So it's on whippenstock.com. And then Fuck Jeff Bezos, but it's also on Amazon. Well, thank you, Keegan, so much for talking a little bit more about the book. Uh, you know, again, we've been friends for for a while now. I sort of got to see this whole book kind of come together. I remember you would like text me every now and then like 500 more words today. So it's just so cool to like see this out, to see people taking pictures of it, reading it and already having discussions around it. I love seeing people pissed off about it already. So it's just so great to talk a little bit more about it and congratulations on your first book. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to connect with Keegan and May and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Stop, stop.